Hello, and welcome to Alive or Just Blethering, a podcast where two 30-somethings discuss the music we found and loved growing up. My name is Keith McLeod, and with me is my fellow host, Chris Lavender. Today on Alive or Just Blethering, I'll be taking us through Audio Slave by Audio Slave. Good afternoon, Keith. How are you doing today? It is hotter than Satan's dick in here, man. So warm. I'm so sweaty. I mean, I've got the window open. I apologise for any background noise. There's going to be loads. I can't close it otherwise. It's like a dog in a car. I'll die. I'm so warm. I don't know if I can get through this. And today's album we're talking about is shit hot as well. Ironically, it has a flame on the cover. I'm actually concerned about putting like my bare forearms down onto the desk because I can hear myself peeling them off at the same time. That's the sound oh, of recording success, Keith. We're going to get through it. Mm, big time. Uh, yeah, man. I, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, uh, I've got COVID, so that's been fun. I've been you trapped have in- COVID. <laughs> I've, I've been trapped inside for the last 10 days. Um, I was... One of the, you know, I've been come down with it. So if apologies for any coughs for anyone who hears anything. But also, you know, the pandemic that uh, some of our friends have perhaps been caught up in. Sorry. It fucking sucks. <laughs> Can't really who, say much who calls more. It a, who calls it a pandemic? Do, do you read the news? No. Oh, dear. Essentially, there was that many close contacts getting pinged over the last two weeks by ah. the app. It's been referred to as the pandemic. There is just that many people who are just getting flagged up for being close contacts, for being in contact in near. I don't know how it works. They they were talking about that it was going to be like Bluetooth. Turns out you just give your phone, you just give your friends phone numbers to the track and trace people, and then they say, "Yeah, you were too close for too long. Stay inside for ten days." Ping, ping. Did you see the? Uh the um, protests in London today about uh, the, the anti-lockdown protests. Well, on Freedom Day. In, on, yes, yes. On Freedom Day, apparently, circa 2,000 people went to London to protest the restrictions on the day the restrictions were eased. That, Just a really off-the-wall question. How much does a calendar cost? Oh, I mean, circa Christmas time, you could probably get them for about 99p. Okay. So for £2,000, we could solve this. Potentially. With 2,000 no, calendars. No. Because you're taking it for granted that those 2,000 people can read. Very good point. Very good point. And they clearly can't. So we're going to need to, going to, need to reboot the whole education system here. Okay, that's that's a bigger task. That's going to need a lot more than 2,000 calendars. Speaking of, uh, speaking of news as well, on the last episode, I got absolutely suckered by clickbait. So we were talking about um, Jimmy Eat World. We were talking, talking about... Um, a little bit of Blink-22, or were we talking about Blink-22? We were oh, talking yeah. about music videos, and I was yeah. like, oh, Trav, I've got a look at a video here that Travis Barker is uh, coming back Tom DeLonge, blah, 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 blah. Fuck me. Absolute clickbait. What a rookie. Come on. We, 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 need, to, we need to really raise the standards here. This is a live of blethering here. We're, we're a serious media organisation. Well, I wanted to... Um, <laughs> I wanted to uh, I nearly edited that part out but I was like ah, it just sounds weird if I do it so I'll just mug myself off here <laughs> mug ah so this week's album yes this this was a good one this was for, for context for our listeners this was originally going to be one that I picked 
Yes, you um, you you dived right in there and took audio slave, and I was pissed. You were. I didn't. I did not let that go for a while, and then eventually you've passed it over to me. So you better do it proud, because it's got some history. All right, man. No pressure. Thanks. Tons Thanks of pressure. Much. More pressure. Lots of pressure. I've probably probably wouldn't have done a good job as you would have done on it, but let's. Uh, shall we get started? Crack on. Crack on. Tell me. Tell me what I might not know already. Alrighty then. Audio Slave is a debut studio album by American rock supergroup Audio Slave. Supergroup. Always super had a group. had a little thing for the phrase supergroup. What, that it's absolutely wank or did you love it a little bit? Total wank. I fucking hate the idea of like these people are a supergroup because they have previously released albums. What makes it a fucking supergroup? Like Technically, all bands are technically all bands made up of artists that were previously in bands or supergroups. Correct. So the phrase supergroup is completely irrelevant. Are you going to say that bands, and you know what, there's people going to be out there that's going to be like, yes, Led Zeppelin are a supergroup because they were because you had members of the 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 Yardbirds and you had Cream and stuff. Ooh, they're that's gonna, so relevant. That's going to come up later. There's going to be loads of stuff, but you can say that with supergroups. The, the phrase supergroup is, like you say, meaningless because everyone's been in multiple bands. Yep. Very, very rarely. I, I haven't met every band in the world. I'm sorry. But imagine, imagine these guys did one album, it was shit, and then they went away. Are they still a supergroup? Precisely. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, it was first released on November 18th, 2002 through Epic Records and Interscope Records. We've uh, had a few Epic and Interscope ones. There's, there's, sure. a, there's an interesting sort of thing we'll get into with regards to why that's on two labels. But we've obviously mentioned how they are supergroup were let's not piss around here i think everyone knows who made up audio slave it was the three instrumental members of rage against the machine and chris cornell of soundgarden are we all are we on the same level there who who was soundgarden tell me more no i'm joking of course i know who soundgarden and of course and we all know who chris cornell was he was an absolute legend we have mentioned chris before on the uh, on the pod because of uh Episode one and Chester Bennington and and those people that have uh, made a, a pretty hefty decision in their lives to, to literally end it. So, yeah, it's um it's a sad story. It, it it shows itself a little bit as well in the formation of of Audio Slave. They had some 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 rough times to begin with, partially because of the coming together of sort of two quite big names. Also the um the issues that Cornell was going through at the time as well, but um. We'll go to the formation. So Audio Slave's history dates back to October 18th, 2000, when Rage Against Machine broke up after Zack De La Rocha announced he was leaving. So, yeah, I didn't realise this is why he left. And we've hinted before we're going to get into deeper into Rage Against Machine because it's a big band for both of us. Totally. But um, cited a breakdown in the band's decision-making process. I've never looked into why Zack left, but whatever reason he left, he's obviously over it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, of course, it's twenty-one years later, and they've uh, they've got back together, done a couple of reunions, blah blah blah. Still waiting on that new music, guys. No pressure. No pressure. I mean, the guys can clearly make new music. Did you ever listen to Prophets of Rage? I didn't. I suppose after Audio Slave, I was a bit, I was a bit spent on Tom Morello supergroups, so I didn't really go <laughs> any much further with it. 
<laughs> that's that's a supergroup. If it's got Tom Morello in it, it's a supergroup. Is that where we're going with this? Have you seen? Have you not seen um, Tom Morello? I can't remember the other guitarist in it, but it's Tom Morello and Ian. I always get his name mixed up. Is it Ian Scott or Scott Ian from Scott Anthrax? Ian from Anthrax, yeah. Uh, two other guitarists, and they do the Game of Thrones theme tune. Jesus, I think it's a Fender advert, and it's obviously pre-season right. bucket of shit eight. Yeah, that, that was interesting. So the uh, the remaining three members of Rings Machine decided to stay together, announce plans to search for and continue with a new vocalist. They jammed with several vocalists, including Be Real of Cypress Hill. That'd have been cool. I'd like to hear that. That isn't isn't that Prophets of Rage? I don't know what was Prophets of Rage. I thought it was like Cypress Hill and Rage Against oh, the Machine. Fuck, we're gonna have to Google Prophets of Rage now. Cause yeah. Because you've, you've brought it up. Oh, you're on the Googs. I'll keep filling. I'm, I'm on the Googs. I'm on the Googs here. So they jammed with several vocals. And blah, 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 blah. Contrary to popular belief, Lane Stanley of Alice in Chains never auditioned for the band. This was this rumour was debunked by Morello on his Twitter account in 2015. And I went to I'd highly doubt that. I'd highly doubt Lane auditioning for anything in that time of his life. Well, I don't know who started the rumour, but yeah, someone in 2015 literally just mentioned, um, tweet, tweeted? Tweeted? Is that the right term? Who knows? To tweet, tweet, I tweet, you tweet, we tweet. Fuck's sake, am I a boomer or what? Tweet, tweet. Uh, tweeted Morello and was just like, did Lane stand an edition? And he was like, no. Of course he didn't. By, this, by 2000, 2001, Lane Staley was a, a shadow of a former self. Well, he didn't, he, was, he didn't pass he away until 2015. Well. Lane Staley died in 2002. Did he? I thought I googled. Wait, hang on. Oh no, I need to Google. Yes, yep. you're right. It was 2002. My mistake. Thank you. And <laughs> it must just have been just a, a, must have been Cornell that passed away in 2015. It was. And just to touch on Prophets of Rage, it Prophets of Rage were yeah three members of of Rage Against the Machine, the the musical section of Rage Against the Machine, whatever you said, and two members of Public Enemy, which is DJ Lord and Chuck D, and Be Real from Cypress Hill. So that's what that's the who Prophets of Rage were. Right, got you. I think I think I knew the public enemy connection. I didn't know that Cypress Hill were in there as well. Uh, they were basically, as far as I was concerned, Prophets of Rage were effectively a Rage Against the Machine sort of tribute act, but with the original musicians. They did release their own album. They released their own music, of course, but I think live they just basically played off the the old rage stuff just with the difference uh different singers to be fair as i understand it that's also a little bit of what audio slave were as well they, they, they couldn't get away with it uh, or couldn't get away from it and just to clarify um chris Cornell passed away may 18th 2017 not 2015 2017 goodness oh well gone but not forgotten so it was music producer and friend rick rubin that suggested they play with chris cornell of Soundgarden. Ruben was confident that with the right new voice, Rage Against Machine had the potential to become a better band. He believed, quote, it could turn into a Yardbirds into Led Zeppelin scenario. Yeah, there we go. There's that reference I made earlier. Yeah. Completely. The, the, the most famous, I fucking hate this word, supergroup I could think of off the top of my head was that Led Zeppelin did come from something else and now... What Led Zeppelin became became more famous than where what they came from. Yeah, my understanding is that it was only Jimmy Page that came from Yardbirds. Jimmy Page went on from Yardbirds to create Led Zeppelin. 
fuck knows. I'm not that in tune with it. I just know the word Yardbirds. Was that with like Clapton, the racist that he is, and all those? Yeah, the the Yardbirds themselves were credited for creating some of the you know the the greatest, most iconic guitarists of all time. But they all went on to become those guitarists. They didn't become those guitarists in Yardbirds, from what I read. But I didn't go yeah. too much into it. So someone someone as if if we're right or wrong. So so Rick Rubin thought or put the idea in there the the psyche that Rage Against the Machine could then become that what would then become Audio Slave would be like the Led Zeppelin. Interesting analogy given the the sound that Audio Slave captured. Interesting. There's another Led Zeppelin link later on that will probably get into but yeah so Comerford Timmy C later credited Rubin for being the catalyst that brought Audio Slave together he called him the angel at the crossroads because quote if it wasn't for him I wouldn't be here today so it really was Rubin that I think they they maybe exhausted a few attempts at finding a vocalist and it was Rubin that said go go talk to Chris Cornell I think he at the time he was recording his second solo album so he was a bit uh, don't know if I want to to give up this and, and go jam with these guys, but uh, I'll I'll get into it uh, shortly. I've only listened to one Chris Cornell solo album. That was uh, Euphoria Morning, and it was oh, not listened to any. It, it wasn't anything to write home about. It was, it was, it, it, I don't know. It was no when when you hear a solo album from an artist, depending on the artist you're going to want more of what they were doing. And it's a completely misguided ideal because you're never going to get that. You're going to get what that solo artist wants to make. And that's what he wanted to make mm-hmm. at the time, which was very radio friendly kind of nice music is the only way I can really describe it. There's an, it's quite un, un it's unappealing to someone like myself, at least. So when I heard that Cornell was joining the the Rage Against the Machine guys. I was I was a little bit skeptical when I first heard that, to be honest. So were you aware like were you familiar with audio obviously you're familiar with Rage Against the Machine. Were you familiar with Soundgarden as well? I was I was aware of Soundgarden. I knew like the the hits that they had. So I knew who Chris Cornell was. He was mm-hmm. a singer from that Black Hole Sun song. He was and Spoonman and Super <laughs> Unknown the song. So there that was... is the two songs I know. <laughs> super super massive black hole, which is a Muse song. I can't remember what you just said. Black hole sun and Spoonman. Spoonman to this day still cracks me up every time I hear it because it's such a fucking random song. It, it's 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 all about Chris Cornell's lyrics. So I knew he was a good, you know, he was. I knew he was like an icon of of Seattle grunge, which. I can't really recall if I'd really got really deep into by this point. I don't think I did. Um, I did not. So I knew who he was. I knew what his, his stock was. I knew where he was coming from. I was much... His m- stock. I knew, but he's, he's a fucking like? champion racehorse, mate. And I knew he was... <laughs> and I knew the guys that were, you know, from Rage Against the Machine. Rage Against the Machine were probably my favourite band of 2001. So this is how I got into Audio Slave. They were the closest thing I could get to Rage Against the Machine. Like I'm, and Fair. that that's no insult to to Chris Cornell. Like yourself, I was aware of him. I knew a couple of Soundgarden songs, but I was never into the grunge scene or particularly into Soundgarden at all. So 
you know, Zach De La Rocha leaves in 2000, I probably just got into Rage Against the Machine as he was exiting the band a couple of years later for them, for Audio Save to then be Rage Against the Machine. And uh, I ended up seeing them again at Teen the Park in 2005. They played Killing in the Name of, and you will see live footage of Audio Slave playing Rage songs everywhere they went. And I think that's what we're saying about um, Prophets of Rage. They just, Audio Slave released three albums and became, and were very much their own band and had their own songs, Cochise, Like a Stone, etc. But they never escaped the Rage songs. And I think they, I want, I want to say they've covered. Soundgarden as well, but I'm not. I'm not sure on that one as much. Yeah, I really, I really dug Rage Against the Machine, and I was well into that whole you know fuck the government type stuff. So for that to go from that into Audio Slave, which was much more palatable for the radio, was a little yeah. bit of a, a change. But then that's when I discovered probably Chris Cornell's voice is as good as it was, and I was like, right, okay, there's something to this. So it probably got me into like where did he come from? What was his what was his backstory? It was an interesting one to come out at the time because if you compare it to other music I was probably listening to, you know, you throw in some slipknots, corns, bit of new metal. This didn't fit. No, not at all, and it was it was completely separate from that. And I think like you're saying, if it wasn't for the rage element, I maybe would would have missed um, Audio Slave, if that's fair to say. Very likely, very very likely. They, if, if it wasn't for them, I, it could have quite easily passed me by. There are some amazing songs in this album, and I am very glad to have listened to this album. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later on. But I also didn't go past this album. I never listened to anything after this this album. I only know Be Yourself, and I've tried listening to Out of Exile, and it's just beige it's so bland yeah and it's not it, that's not a fair that's not a fair criticism because there are songs on this album that i think start quite beigey not really got a, a destination in mind but then shit the bed they kick in and when they do kick in you're like yes i am listening to this song i'm happy this song is now playing but the intros to some of these songs seem to be ones that then just got re Gurgitated into the next album, but then yeah. the songs just felt like they lost a lot of purpose in them, which was quite a shame. I think they got so much right with this album, it was always going to be a difficult follow up. In saying that, though, I think this album's about three songs too long. Definitely. Definitely. It's at least three songs too long. But we'll, we'll get into that. So I'd said before about the, um, it was, if it wasn't for Ruben, they wouldn't have gone to Chris Cornell and, 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 there, there wouldn't be a band. So the chemistry between Cornell and the other three was immediately apparent. As Morello described, he stepped onto the microphone and sang the song, and I couldn't believe it. It didn't sound good. It didn't sound great. It sounded transcendent. And when there is the, when there is an irreplaceable chemistry for the first moment, you can't deny it. So in their first 19 days of rehearsals, the band wrote 21 songs. Jesus Christ. That's a, over a song a day. Just the talent in that room just... Oozing out of the door handles, mate. Fucking hell. The, they began working in the studio in late May 2001 with Ruben as producer while sorting out other management issues. So, yeah, 
you have prolifically talented individuals like we're saying with 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 Chris Cornell his I wasn't particularly aware of his his prior work but like on this album his vocals are amazing and like so so unique to him that like you can hear the guy a mile away you know it's him the stuff that he does I think only he can do like he is genuinely like a, 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 I think I've I'd, I'd seen in, in some of my, my reading uh, with regards to his, his former wife as well saying he was a once in a generation rock singer like and I think that's fair no one else sounds like Chris Cornell yeah he's his story about how he found his voice he used to be a drummer you know he started as a drummer and yeah. he just started singing just he was a reluctant singer he couldn't get a singer for his band so he just stepped in and and stepped up to it and then he discovered he could push his voice and every day he was like i can take it up another note i can take it another note and he just kept mm-hmm. pushing and pushing and discovered he could just keep going and it just kept on getting higher and higher and he found this amazing sound that he that he pulls through which is interesting how how unique Cornell's voices, yeah, compared to the music that Tom Morello, um, Tim and uh, Brad, Brad were making, because to me, you take Chris Cornell's voice out of this, you could put a Zach Delarocha rapping over it, and it wouldn't sound out of place as a fifth Rage Against the Machine album. In places, not in every song, not in every song, but in a lot of songs. You take a song like Set It Off, that's that's a Rage Against the Machine song with Chris Cornell singing on top of it. I'm singing it through my head. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if I can agree with that entirely. You're, you're, you're right, it is, it is the same band. I I figured out how to play Cochise on bass because it is basically um, Take the Power Back. Eh, not Take the Power Back, it's basically... Oh, son of a bitch, what is the fucking name of that song? <laughs> God damn it. It's it's like a Rage Against the Machine song. But that's Tom Morello's style. Like I was a massive fan of Tom Morello as a guitarist. He was the first guitarist I bought a, a music book for learning songs. The first book I bought was a Rage Against the Machine sort of compilation. Had like you know, start to finish, had like three three songs from, from each album type thing. Mm-hmm. And that was the one that I used as my bible that was my the first time i learned to play guitar properly was was to this was to rage against the machine songs sure surely every guitarist at their time you know if they have followed a sort of rockier heavier path or interest you know if they've gone if they've had that phase have looked into tom morello's playing because the guy was so influential it was bomb track Coaches and the the coaches riff and the bomb track riff is practically the, it's the same notes. It's practically the same riff, just in a different order. So I, you know, there's a little flex there. I managed to figure that one out myself. Fine enough. But that's how it's done. But I like. I think the other part of it was Tom Morello isn't just a guitar player. He's also a master of effects. So that digi whammy, well, throwing the octaves up. I had a an effects pedal with a, an expression pedal on it and managed to find little sort of settings that could get to the sound yeah. that I wanted to get. And that was what Tom Morello was good for. And that when it did come from that switch over from Rage Against the Machine to Audio Slave, 
the settings, the change in style and playing, I don't feel changed at all. And keeping the same drummer and the same bassist to your side, I think just fed into that. And that's where I don't feel they made a massive change. There were some changes, but there wasn't the massive change that I would have liked to see. I think you maybe could have taken, from my perspective, some of the, the bigger riffs on the album. And yeah, you could maybe technically put anything over that. Yeah. But I think the songwriting itself, you've got, you know, songs like uh, like like a stone and what are you? You just you just wouldn't have gotten on a Rage Against Machine album. You know those slower. I mean, okay, go back to Evil Empire and you've got a couple of slower moments, etc. But they're the, the the tonally, I think they're they're just different. So I think maybe how they've built these songs is more to complement Cornell. Yeah, but fair enough. You're right. It's still there's still you can still hear that Rage Against the Machine sound, but then you've got all three musical members in there. They're playing the same instruments. They're playing the same rigs. You're you're gonna have that crossover, and I wonder if. I wonder how each member felt about that, or specifically Cornell. Like, did he ever feel a little bit under Delaroche's shadow a little bit? Because I think people were probably wanting more killing in the name of than they were Black Hole Sun. Yeah, I could see that he he probably wanted to make it out for himself. And that is probably one of the reasons he has to flex his vocals so much to make people realise that. It's just, I think comparing Zach Delarusha and Chris Cornell is apples to oranges. You can't... 100%. They're not in the... They're in different ballparks. They're in different leagues. They're in different fucking games. One's playing football. The other's playing rugby. You know, they're in totally different sports altogether. So to compare the two is not fair nor reasonable. I think from an energy perspective, they both brought heaps of energy. They brought heaps of personality that came out in the music that they made. And this is where I think Chris Cornell did slot in really well because he had the the backing, the history. I mean, Rage Against the Machine started in the, the early 90s. Soundgarden had started in the, the late 80s. So the the pedigree that they were bringing to Audio Slave when, when Audio Slave brought in, came in 2001 when they, when they met up, they would have. I I can just see them being total professionals and just melting together immediately. Well, I mean, let, let, let's look at it from this perspective. In what was it, nineteen days, the band wrote twenty one songs. Between two thousand and one and two thousand seven, they did three albums worth of material. So, Rage Against the Machine, in the space of from ninety two to two thousand. So that's what. Oh, it's, it's still eight years. Did three albums. Yeah, one, plus, a one cover, covers. Co- plus a cover album. They did four albums with one being a cover album. But if we do go back to Audio Slave, their 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 material is a bit a bit more condensed. Yep, Audio Slave came out in two thousand two. Out of Exile came out three years later in two thousand five, and then Revelations came out in two thousand and six. So actually, they did three albums in four years. Raging Against Machine did. Three albums and a cover album in eight years. Yeah, they were they they were smart about it. They clearly got it right. And I mean, I know you're probably going to come onto this later, but the singles that they pulled from this album were phenomenal, fantastic. 
So I'd mentioned label and management issues. You said that there was a, there was a concern of why it was on Interscope and Epic. So tell me a bit more about that. On March nineteenth, two thousand two, Audio Slave were confirmed for the seventh annual Ozfest despite at the time having neither an official name nor a release date for their album. So just off the weight of the members, they were getting festival tour, they were getting festival dates. A few days later, however, reports surfaced that the band had broken up before they had played for a public audience. Cornell's manager confirmed that the frontman had left the band with no explanation given. So one minute, these guys are writing 21 songs in 18 days and they're about to play Ozfest before they've even got a name. Next minute... Cornell's binned it. He's off. See you later, mate. Wow. Initial rumours suggest that Cornell took issue with having two managers actively involved in the project. Jim Guerinot, I butchered that, for Rebel Waltz represented Cornell while Peter Mensch of Q Prime handled Raising Against the Machine. So even at this point, there's still Chris Cornell and Raising Against the Machine. Mensch. Peter Mensch. Why do I know that name? I didn't follow up on him, so I'm not sure. That is a name. That is. You have a look for Peter Mensch. I'm gonna I'll do my next line. Yeah, go for it. According to the band, however, the split was not triggered by personal conflicts, but by their quarrelling quarreling managers. So there was a split, but it wasn't the band like deciding not to continue with each other. It was down to the managers. After the mixing of the album was finished, roughly six weeks later, the group reformed and simultaneously fired the former management companies and hired another. That was the firm. So basically, it was Chris Cornell's manager that had a problem with... Or sorry, it wasn't Chris Cornell. It was Chris Cornell's manager that had a problem with someone else being there. Uh, I I think that's something we can take from that. Their previous labels, Epic and Interscope, settled their differences by agreeing to alternate who released the band's albums. Oh, find out who he is. Who's Peter Mensch? Yeah, he's he's very he's a very famous, very very famous music manager. He's managed Q Prime, which is like the that's your heavy metal, uh, basically ACDC, Def Leppard, Suicidal Tendencies, Metallica. You yeah. you you name a band, he has had a, a finger in the pie somewhere. But his third wife is Louise Mensch. She's, oh, she's just one of those reporters. She's a reporter for the Trump administration. Um, Ooh, she's uh, unbelievable. She got widely known in the U.S. for reporting and speculation about connections between Trump and the Russian government. She's she's just a shit stirrer. She's a professional shit stirrer. That's that's her right. that's her job. She got kicked out of parliament and now basically just goes on twitter and baits people and turns the arguments into arguing amongst themselves she's actually got kicked out of parliament which government does she work for here the british government you said trump i thought you, i thought you said she worked for the trump administration no no sorry she, she just reported on it she did a lot of reporting ah. um yeah she's got a famous twitter account go and look it up if you want to rot some brain cells hmm. no thank you so anyway, that's where I recognise that name from. Sorry for the divergence. No worries. Very interesting. I had no idea about any of that. Yeah, so so that's sort of where, where the band sort of began. It was it was literally emerging. Rage Against the Machine, Zach De La Rocha had left. So the band essentially ceased to continue as Rage Against the Machine and picked up with Cornell and became Audio Slave. But there was some discrepancies about management. There were some discrepancies about labels. So 
there you have it. They they kind of had to they essentially had to quit, make their managers redundant, yeah. and then and then hire a new one and went with someone else. Yeah, it's a lot of I know that bands do that because they are the, the the deals they've signed their contracts are often until you you give up, you quit, or some some kind of little subclause. So the yeah, he probably did quit. But then just to yeah. come back under a different name or under a different start a new contract. Presumably the, the, the band had to do, you know, Rage had to do something similar where they um could release that manager. So it wasn't just it wasn't just Raging Against Machine that had issues. Sorry, it wasn't just the, the formation of the band and, and crossing labels and management that had issues. Cornell himself had issues. Now we're, we're aware, we've already discussed, mentioned the, the knowledge that ultimately Chris Cornell ended his own life in 2017 that those issues with alcohol drugs etc also mostly alcohol i did read at some point sort of did surface at this point so you know 2000 2001 two bad time for chris cornell so the band was nearly the band was nearly derailed before the album's release cornell was going through alcohol problems and so the slot on Ozfest was actually cancelled. So they never actually made that gig. Yeah. He um so bef- um while in Soundgarden, Cornell was living with a a bloke called Andrew Wood. And he was also he was the lead singer in another band called Mother Lovebone. Now, Andrew Wood I believe died of an overdose while living with Cornell. And okay. that's where Cornell wrote, he wrote like two songs to like, you know, in memory of his, of his past friend. And he ended up getting involved with uh, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament, who were ex-members of Mother Lovebone, but then became... They 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 made a supergroup again, another one uh, called Temple of the yeah. Dog. Temple of the Dog, Temple of the Dog was effect ended up making an entire album in memory of Andrew Wood. And after Cornell left Temple of the Dog, effectively they became Pearl Jam. Wow, really? This is so the story of the, the of Temple of the Dog, and I would highly recommend anyone who's a Chris Cornell fan give Temple of the Dog a listen. They have. The lyrics that that are in there they echo quite a lot through uh, into audio slave work. It's it's very much around addiction and I would and and moving on and stuff. So I would I would strongly recommend it if you've not heard them before. So I did also hear that when Cornell was going through the audio slave change, he was at at a very low point drugs use wise as well. Cornell was lead vocals for Temple of the Dog with Eddie Vedder as backing vocals. Yeah. Wow. I mean, Pearl Jam existed. They just weren't yield massive by yeah. that point. Um, no, fair enough. And it was essentially a, a tribute to their to their friend. Yeah. It was a... It's, like I said, it started as two songs and ended up an entire album. So the tour was cancelled. So during this time, uh, there was a rumour that Cornell had checked himself into drug rehabilitation he later confirmed this check-in via an interview with Metal Hammer that was conducted via clinic payphone. So he's in the rehabilitation clinic and he's on the phone giving an interview saying, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm here, I'm here. And it was, uh, I think he mentions later on, it was it was mostly 
alcohol that, that he was in there for. That That's really what his demon was and what he was struggling with. Okay. In a San Diego City Beat article, Cornell explained that he went through a horrible personal crisis during the making of the first record, saying that in rehab, staying in rehab for two months and separating from his wife at the same time. Yeah, he did. They, they did separate in the early 2000s. So that was around that time, was it? Okay. Yeah. So this is this is sort of the, the milestone that Audio Slave had to get past before they could actually become the band. They had to essentially end Rage Against the Machine. They then had to reform as Audio Slave, but Chris Cornell had to get past some some demons before he could do that. Yeah, that's quite quite the um quite the journey, quite the road to Damascus type journey, isn't it? Goodness. Total total epic epic journey. What I've not written down. So bear with me for one second. Is now, do you know what this where the civilian demos come in then? Yeah, I'll just finish off by saying at some point, essentially, Cornell thanks the band for getting them through that. Like, he, he knows he sort of put them through shit, you know, very early days, very early relationship with, with the guys, and he knew. He later on knew that he was not in a good place to start a band, let alone be in a band. So after that, he he credits the band with helping them with a lot of shit and, and getting them through that. So so good on him. Yeah, the 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 name civilian. How how do you know the name civilian? So this was something that one of my friends told me back in two thousand and one, two thousand two, and before the Audio Slave album was released. A friend of mine had informed me, whether he'd read it in an article, in a magazine, or or online somewhere, that the ex-members of Rage Against the Machine had teamed up with Chris Cornell and they'd formed the Civilian Project. Now, again, back to our old friend, peer-to-peer file sharing, smash it on a Napster, type in the Civilian Project, download everything you can, just hoover it up. Uh, And I had maybe... five or six songs that were civilian titled the civilian project but i knew that something else was going to come of it and it wasn't until and i just had them as like demos i didn't have them with the knowledge like in in whatever date that or the audio slave album was coming out like in in six months time or however long this will then be audio slave i just had it as a civilian project and it wasn't until Kachis came out with a video on MTV2 or Kerrang that I was like fuck me that's that's a civilian project that's awesome so so Lav you you son of a bitch were part of the problem you pissed off Tom Morello probably so yeah the original idea for the band's name was civilian however Morello later discredited the name contradicting both Comerford and Cornell saying that Civilian was merely a rumour circulating at the time. He stated the band only ever had one name and that was Audio Slave. However, it was, it must have just been a working title. Yeah. Because, like you say, those songs got online. So, meanwhile, 13 rough mixes of songs the band had created months previously were leaked to peer and peer, peer to peer file sharing network, networks, blah, 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 May 2002, blah, 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 under the name Civilian. According to Morello, the songs were unfinished and, in some cases, weren't even the same lyric songs' performances. You know, they were really, really rough demos. To MTV, he described them as inferior sketches 
of works in progress sent to Seattle for Chris to work on. Someone at that studio helped themselves to a copy and after eight months it made its way onto an Italian website, blah, 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 ended up in peer-to-peer sharing. Uh, and he was pissed. The one I remember having, the, the one I really stands out to me was what then became known as Getaway Car and it was just called Get Yourself a Car. Yeah, and because that's one of the hooks in the songs, isn't it? Yeah. So he, he was pretty pissed that essentially some kid, as he puts it, took took the liberties, essentially stole their music and put out what even wasn't the finished versions of the songs. It wasn't, that was never intent, the band never intended for people to hear those versions of the songs. They were rough demos. The um, The recording of the album was done in multiple places. So I've got listed here one, two, three, four, five different locations because you essentially had Rage Against the Machine in Los Angeles and you had Chris Cornell in Seattle. Yeah. So they had to work between the two of them. So in total, it was recorded at Cell Studios, which was Hollywood, Royal Tone Studios in North Hollywood. You then had Litho, L-I-T-H-O, Litho in Seattle, and then back to Studio X in Somona, California, and then a lot of it was finally finished up with um, in Rick Rubin's personal studio, in, again in California. So the band were clearly touring a few places, all the while sending this stuff to Cornell in Seattle. Yeah, it's interesting that it's not like the typical stuff that we've sort of covered for debut albums that are you know, recorded in a weekend or whatever, or even just a month in one single studio. This is a, yeah, this was a project. Exactly. This was a project. These guys were professionals and they were working on songs back and forth from each other in two different locations as opposed to being in the one place and, and producing music together. They were, they were they were building something here. So back back to the name a little bit actually. Yeah, where does Audio Slave come from? So Morello stayed. Cornell came up with the name over a two two way pager conversation. So they were essentially texting each other in a group chat <laughs> via pagers, yeah. which is amazing. That's, that's weird to think about. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was Cornell that just said, "I've got." I think I think the the, the line was something like he'd had a bit of a vision or something, and and he's, he said, "I've got it. It's audio slave," and everyone else was like, "Cool, yeah, no, we're down for that. That's really good." However, we've got a bit of a Bush X situation coming up. Okay, only not as bad. So. And if you want to know anything about Bush X, you can go back to our Bush episode because clearly no one's listened to it. <laughs> you had to throw that in there. <laughs> Zing! Got you, you son of a bitch. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. It's a very interesting episode. The, the album that we're talking about is just not very good. It's actually a decent episode, I think. It just no one cared. So, yeah, if anyone wants to do us any favours, please go listen to Bush. So... The name was announced, however, it emerged that it had already been used by a band, by an unsigned band in Liverpool. Oh yeah, those those sneaky those sneaky Brits, those sneaky scousers, they're in there with right. it. Going, going down to see a gig and it's... Oh, is that Jordy? <laughs> what on earth was that? Well, sometimes I sometimes I can do them, but then I, on on command I can't really just... I'm not them. even going to because it's Liverpool? just... Liverpool? Liverpool? Liverpool, the scouse. Calm down. Calm down, going down to Liverpool. Nah, no, fucked it. So anyway, <laughs> absolutely fucked it. So the two bands I'm dying, COVID, COVID cough. alive. The two bands worked out a settlement with uh, the American Audio Slave paying them thirty thousand pounds to allow each 
member of the, each band to use the name. However, the UK band, the Liverpool band, ended up changing themselves to the most terrifying thing, which I think is a far better name. Oh, I thought you were going to say the most terrifying thing ever and then say the name. So the, the band came the most terrifying thing. Yeah, Audio Slave Liverpool became the most terrifying thing while Audio Slave were $30,000 less off. The most terrifying thing, I've not Googled them, I've no idea what they ended up doing with their lives, but that was probably the biggest payday they ever got. No doubt. Like, if you've if you've made a website.com and someone, that's the dream, isn't it? Taking, like, some... Well, that's the old dot-com boom, isn't take, it? Take the dot-com, find the, find the website, and then hope someone wants to buy it off you. That's why when, when Lincoln Park changed their name from Lincoln, L, like L-I-N-C-O-L-N, to LinkedIn was just to get the dot com. Yeah, no, totally. Go back to episode one to find out anything about Lincoln Park there if you'd like. So what do you what do you make of the old audio slave moniker? What do you how do you feel about that? When you when you hear the name audio slave, how does that make you feel inside? I don't know, it's it, I never really liked the name, if I'm being honest. I felt the name was a little bit sterile. Um, am I am I the audio slave? Am I a slave to the music, or am I? Are, are they audio slaves? Are, are, are they, they slaves to the the sound? Um, yeah, it's it's a very meh. I don't know if if someone suggested audio slave in a conversation when I I, I love I love starting bands and coming up with new band names. That is my favorite part of forming a band. Because you're about to put a stamp on something that is going to be how you are going to sound or what you're going to market yourselves as for the for the future. So it's, it's a big decision, but it's always made in just the most blase way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I wish I'd written a list down of all the band names I'd came up with over, over time because I've came up with some absolute pingers, but at the same time, I've not taken it too seriously. I feel like Audio Slave is is a serious name but it's that like taking themselves too seriously i don't think anyone else could have got away with calling themselves audio slave no no band from liverpool no young yeah. startup band this had to be uh, a band of of super expert group. fucking yeah you've said it i'm trying my best not to say it <laughs> it had to be a so, bunch of experts a bunch of professionals who came up with that name well it was chris grinnell so the name was mocked by critics due to its, quote, unexpired, uninspired nature and was regarded as one of the worst contemporary rock music band names of all time. <laughs> there we go. Pitchfork called it the most asinine band name of the year, while Chuck Klosterman of Spin Magazine chided it as one of the dumbest band names in recent rock history. Now, I think that's a bit <laughs> brutal, but with with with, with the... With the glaze of hindsight and nostalgia, I think that's a bit brutal, but yeah, Audio Slave, bit shit, bit shit, bit shit, bit of a shit name, shit name. So, what are they going to do? Not only do they name the bandit, they don't even give the first they double down, name. don't they? They double down, they're like, it's what, what so good, it? but named it twice. Pomonious, Pomonious t- named or eponymous title, eponymous Audio Slave. Not only did they double down on it, they actually paid 30 grand for it, so no wonder they doubled down. Fuck. <laughs> That's why they doubled down on it, you know what? Chris Connell, he sends that page a message, that SMS text message with the word audio slave in it. 
Tom Morello and the rest of the boys, they go, eh. And then, and then Chris Cornell's like, we've just paid 30 grand for it. He's like, love it. Love it. Best, best album ever. Best title ever, mate. Do it, do it twice, mate. Yeah, so good. I'm, I'm having it. That's, there's the name. We've, we've paid money for it. We're having it now. So, yeah, there we go. We've got, we've got the formation. We know there's some management issues due to the, the, the sort of people we're getting involved with here. We know Chris Cornell himself had some issues. And we've discussed the name. Are you going to talk about the artwork? I can talk about the artwork. Do you want to talk about the artwork? I can talk about the artwork. And I, 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 I know very little about the artwork. I just know it's done by someone extremely famous. Do you know who or why they are famous? I know why they are famous. The, the artwork right. was, was created by a extremely... This is rock royalty gentleman named Storm Thorgerson. All right, so you know the name. When you said... You know what they're famous for. I imagine you were going to say the album title, not that you knew the artist. Of course. They made the most iconic album art you've ever known. And we discussed it in episode 11 with Finch. He created Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. We mentioned it. We mentioned it earlier as well when we were talking about uh, the thingy birds. But yes, you're you're right. It was, and I think this guy probably has the best name we've ever had on the podcast so far. Storm Thorgerson. And he was English. <laughs> yeah, he was. Storm Ferguson. If that guy's not got Viking heritage, then I don't know how this world works. Once again, was this the band just flexing their contacts? It's like, guys... It's not stated. Not only do we have a shit name we've paid 30 grand for, we've got we've written 21 songs in 19 days. We've got our lineup at Ozfest coming up, and uh, yeah, we've just gone and got Storm Ferguson, you know the guy who did the album artwork for Dark Side of the Moon and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. Just, just got him, just, just sitting in reserve. I didn't, I didn't read as to how they acquired Storm Ferguson, but yeah, the album album blah, 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 cover was designed by Storm Ferguson with Peter Curzon and Rupert Truman, who. As leader of the group of artists known as Hypnosis, H-I-P-G-Gnosis. Yeah. Hypnosis. There's, I'm, I don't know if that's a soft G. Am I just going... Hypnosis. Hypnosis. Right. Who is best known as we've just stated for Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Thorgerson recalled, we knew what we were going to set this idea to the... We knew that we were going to set this idea to the eternal flame. The graphic flame in Lanzarote... A volcanic island, since volcanoes suited the brooding menace of audio slave. Uh, yeah, that's some, uh, some artist wine. Yeah, right that's just so, just justify why we've just paid you so much money, Storm. Well, <laughs> we had a big fucking piss up in Lanzarote. What else did you do? I am I am naming my kid Storm. Like that is going to be an amazing name, Storm. So, yep, the album cover itself was composed by Storm Thorgerson and Peter. Curzon, the flame logo was designed by Peter Curzon, and the photography was was Robert Tru- Rupert Truman. It says here also the scu- the sculpture was Thought House or Thoth House, <laughs> you want to pronounce that. I think it's Thought House. So if Peter Curzon designed it, the sculpture was actually built by by the design studio Thought House. So the there was an unreleased version of the cover shot elsewhere at the same location, so still from Lanzarote. 
uh, if anyone's been there on holiday, um, features a naked man looking at the flame. It was Thurzen that said, we u- we nearly used it, but we were not entirely sure of the nude figure. Mm. Can you imagine if that album was just a naked dude staring at the flame? I mean, it does have a little tiny, tiny person on it. If, what, they're wearing like a, 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 they're wearing like a red, yeah, they're wearing like a red t-shirt. If that guy was naked, if it was that guy, totally teeny, tiny, tiny, don't think it would make a difference. No, I don't think it would have made a difference either. I never knew, but like, now that I know that that's shot in Lanzarote... I thought it was a model. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Like, I don't know. Is that person real? Is that to scale? Or is that just a little, like, rail figure? Do you know what I mean? I I genuinely thought it was, like, a, a model shot because of the the terrain. It looks, like, furry. And if you've, if you ever, if you've ever had model trains or ever made, like, a diorama or something, you get this effect you can get this like sort of mesh effect stuff and it looks like that yeah that's what it looks looks like like action looks like action man's head there we go perfect example yeah it's that furry (laughs) greeny furry stuff and is it felt it'll, it'll be a type of felt i suppose but that's what it looks like i didn't realize it was really on location uh so that that's interesting that they got to blow that money on that as well. It, it absolutely looks like that could have been shot like just on set for the Thunderbirds or something. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean that's that's the vibe you've got going on here. So totally, there you go, Storm Thorgerson. What a fucking great name! What a name, honestly. And and that he's Brit, he's, he's English as well. He, he doesn't sound Thorgerson. It's like from some Swedish art house. Nope, nope. He, he just went to school with. Did he go to school with Sid Barrett as well? Was that his? Was he? Like, he was proper pals with Pink Floyd and all that much. Yeah, he went. He went to school with Sid Barrett, and below him was Roger Waters, and and yeah, he went to school with two of the boys from Pink Floyd. So they, they were childhood friends. From Middlesex, ah, oh, Thorgerson, who was of Norwegian descent. That makes sense. There you go. So part Viking. So you mentioned that the name got a bit of a slagging from Pitchfork. How did the album get reviewed by Pitchfork? They did not like it. They did not like it. I I have read through some of like the, the headlines on this. This was not a well-received album by the gatekeepers or the, the, the critics, was it? Mixed reviews, really. Um, some people loved it, some people hated it. Pitchfork, Pitchfork Media's review reviewers Chris Dahallen De- and Ryan Schrieber praised Cornell's voice, but critically, but criticised virtually every other part of the album, calling it the worst kind of studio rock album, rigorously controlled, even undercut by studio gimmickry. Gimmick, gimmickry. The, they described Cornell's lyrics as complete gibberish. Through <laughs> 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 that, complete gibberish. <laughs> And called Rick Rubin's production uh, a synthesized rock-like production that emits no heat. I think that is wrong. I find that really harsh. I th- yeah. That, and yeah, wrong. You know that, that. I think that's this album is full of energy and it's got a great vibe. I think the it's got a proper rocking out. You can tap your toes, nod your head to it. Uh, to say that it's lukewarm bullshit nah this is 
this has got this is rocking this album i love it and it's interesting that it, it gets compared to we've we've mentioned led zeppelin already my dad loved audio slave funny you should say that because i think earlier we were talking about and you were comparing them to Rage Against Machine and you were saying how like, you know, this could be a Rage Against Machine album but with, with Chris Cornell vocals, etc. I almost wanted to say in my head at the time, it's Rage Against Machine but dad rock. Yeah, yeah, totally. That 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 makes sense. That's not a disrespect to Chris Cornell because he does wonderful, wonderful things on this album. But the, it's just it just the the tone of it and, and the songs themselves are far like you were saying way more radio friendly far more accessible and you could sort of essentially say it is Rage Against Machine but dad rock which I suppose Rage Against Machine nowadays is dad rock nowadays now you know 30 years later when yeah sure you know when I mean I am a dad and I All listen to dad rock so everything I listen to yeah. is dad rock Linkin Park are dad rock mate Linkin Park are dad rock and I fucking love them and I'm not even a dad <laughs> Yeah, on the other hand, other critics praised the supergroup style, reminiscent of the 70s, or reminiscent of 70s heavier metal, and compared to Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, saying they add much needed sound and style to the contemporary mainstream rock music and have the potential to become one of the best bands of the 21st century. In hindsight, that's kind of sad because they obviously over egging it over egging it ever slightly it's there's there's two there's two levels we've gone from like absolute like pitchfork calling it the most biggest pile of dog shit they've they've seen in a generation and then other critics being like oh my god this is the greatest thing in the 21st century it's like it's 2001 or 2002 mate get a grip there's there's a lot there's a lot of century to go yeah, they said they would go on to become one of the best rock bands of the 21st century. Not that they were at that point. But, yeah, you're right. People either loved or hated this album. Which is strange. I've I've never thought of it as a Marmite album. I've always just thought of it as, you know, a really great album to have, to put on. I bought this one on CD. So, you know, yes, Same. I downloaded the Civilian demos, but I made sure I paid for it when it did come out. Good on you. Um, I've put this onto mini disc and this was on repeat for for many many years this was this was played on repeat and i'm 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 not sorry that i didn't follow through with the other albums because i think they they maybe took the bits that i didn't like out if that makes sense they they i liked the yeah. the, the rock riffs i liked the the how the pairing of of having Chris Cornell's like really high vocals and range mixed with like that sort of electronic sound that Tom Morello does with his with his guitars, I liked that, and I felt that when I listened to Out of Exile the first time, it felt really sterile and like they just took the really simple stuff and went for that radio friendly sound to to get the sort that. of yeah I. I... I can't comment too much on the later stuff. I didn't have a chance to listen to it now and I did not listen to it earlier. I think I just went to a different place. The, yeah. the When the band came out, like I said earlier, this was as close as I could get to Rage Against the Machine. Totally. You know, potentially for, from a touring perspective to actually see this band, this is as close as, for me at the time, I would have got to Rage Against the Machine and there was potentially a novelty there. No disrespect to Chris Cornell because as I've already said, they made their own album and I thoroughly enjoyed their own album but once that sort of polish wore off once the sort of 
the idea of them being raised against machine and they weren't sort of wore off then i was kind of i think i was listening to other stuff and i probably wasn't even as listening to raised against machine as much as i was you know i was getting into heavier bands you know maybe every time i die by this time 2004 anyway i was getting into my own bands and i was getting a bit more hardcore and blah blah blah, screamo etc so yeah the same happened for myself there with that this the 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 whole Rage Against the Machine novelty definitely had worn off by this point, and I had moved on to to heavier heavier things usually, or or not sometimes not. Um, but yeah, this was sure. this was one of those ones that was a standalone, the Audio Slave self titled album, just called Audio Slave, and and that was enough, and that was enough for me. I got my fill, and I moved on. And there are amazing songs on this album. So there are. Like kicking off with coaches is just like I, I can still remember it. Maybe I just got absolutely suckered by the hype, but it's it's Rage Against Machine. Who's this new Chris Cornell guy? Like, and I don't mean new because I know he's not new. I know he's from Soundgarden, but like, where's this going to come from? What's happening here? Oh, you've got this massive build up. I've said before I don't like music videos, but this music video is so clearly in my head with the sort of firework performance stuff. You've got the, the slow build up, you've just got the, 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 the whatever effect Morello's doing, you've got the bass sort of rumbling on, you've got the din din pa din. Oh it's like it's just it starts to go somewhere and then it just punches you right in the face and doesn't stop. Like that riff, as much as I said I think it's very similar to Bomb Track, it's it, it's not when you hear it. No, like, it's it's it is, it is a it is a headbanger of a riff. Like that is Yeah. Like that is and it's just all the all those movies of the 2000s just encapsulated in that. So I remember, was it the video for Show Me How to Live? Is that the, the car chase one? I think, yeah, is that... In, I didn't look into this. I knew I should have. Is it not... Uh, they, 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 they took a movie. Was it Bullet or, or something? I'm going to have to pause you there. I need the toilet really badly. back from your exceptionally long piss the uh, music video for show me how to live was uh yeah they had sliced it with the 1971 film vanishing point right so it was that that's the car chase one isn't it yep so it was the band themselves in a 1970 dodge challenger and they were just driving around and they sort of cut that into to scenes from the video and stuff like that they think they used the dj from the from the movie as a sort of as it goes on to audio slave yeah they do yeah that's that's vanishing point yeah that's cool that's a really cool video and i think it was it was this the song <clears throat> i didn't really care for the video for kachis because it's just a performance video yeah yeah, yeah. it's your worst um, kind of video right not the worst because it's actually at least some kind of backdrop or setting it that's just them performing it's not a live video with music over the top which is mm-hmm. even you know it's just another level it's not far off that but at least show me how to live. It's got a storyline to it. You've got to follow it, and you get to see where it's going. Is it like a stone? That's basically just a Chris Cornell solo video, almost. No, I don't think that's fair. I did watch that video recently. That's the the whole band are sort of in this house, and okay. 
I read that the the theory the director was using was they sort of use negative space to ref to to um to show ironically the the music musicians of the past musicians that are missing maybe someone else would have filled that space maybe someone else would have been there for that performance okay uh, i've watched that video a hundred times and never once considered that that concept but going back to what they were saying about the lyrics being gibberish etc yeah i sort of follow struggle to follow like a stone as much as i fucking love that song and it gives me goosebumps lyrically it's a bit it's a bit of an odd duck to be fair yeah it it sits in that and this is the next thing is that if you want to listen to out of exile it's basically an album of like a stones yeah you gotta wonder if that's i mean i doubt the band who are this prolific at writing would just say that's what worked we'll just do that another 12 times but I would know because I never listened to it. Big, so. I, I could be wrong. I've never given it more than, you know, more than it's due. I skipped through the, the thing trying to find a, a riff that sort of like took me, but none of it did. But then I think I think we, we discussed this earlier. I think the best song on the album, possibly, Shadow of the Sun. Yeah, so Shadow of the Sun, they released five singles in total from the album. Cochise, October 15th. Cochise, Cochise. Cochise. So he was a general. Was he a general in the? He was a, an Indian chief chieftain. I'll take your word for it. Like a stone, uh, January twenty first, two thousand three. Show me how to live. June two thousand three. I am the highway. September two thousand three. And then what are you? Second of March two thousand four. I, I never knew that one came out. No, me neither. Two thousand four. I may very well have been past them at this point. To be fair. Very likely. But, yeah, you mentioned it there. We both sort of, I think, have a f- favourite. Is it fair to say it's, it's, it's our favourite song on the album? It's the one that reminds me that I have to give songs a chance, which totally flies in the face of what I've done for the follow-up album. But it's the <laughs> it's it starts off quite soft. Mm-hmm. And then it just builds and builds builds and then it ends up ending in the almost pig squeal of 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 a screech it's an incredibly Um, heavy moment yeah all the all the song all the whole the band just build and build and build and there's and chris cornell just screeching over them it's fucking incredible like it it takes me by surprise 20 years later yeah the I think the album themselves, there's there's a few, like I said earlier, you can maybe take two to three songs off of this album. My notes on that would be you could easily cut track 10, 11. You could tr- cut track 10, which is Hypnotized. That's that sort of weird... That sounds, yeah, again, that, again, that sounds like it's from a movie. Yeah, it's like a sort of weird... Sort could of be the Matrix. 90s. Could yeah, be in that. Absolutely could be from the first Matrix. It's a weird sort of late nineties, early noughties, rocky dancing number. And I just don't quite think it fits with the rest of the world. Yeah. So weird. You're right. Yeah, it's the wrong wrong place for that. That's all. You could cut eleven and or twelve. So that's uh Bring Them Back Alive and Light My Way. And then I would cut the last remaining light and I would just have Getaway Car as the last song the the, the album and this is something I do remember from the album 
and I was sort of afraid of it coming back to it, is the latter half I didn't listen to as much. The like second the first... half it drops off as like after maybe I after I am the highway, I feel like yeah. I have to push through the rest of the album. Yeah, agreed. There's some good stuff there. There is some good stuff there. Yep, yep. But I don't yep. think you needed fourteen songs on this album. Make yeah, make it a twelve track. 12-track album, stick on a couple of bonus tracks, make them quiet, put some silences in there, don't name them, whatever you want to do. But yeah, having having 14 named titled tracks on this was a bit of a, bit of a push. 65 minutes long. It's a long 65 minutes. Unlike listening to Lateralis, which is probably of a similar length. What was that, 67, 68 minutes? That was in the. I mean, that might have even been in the seventies. You know, what's the maximum you can have? They they left they left the sound engineers nine seconds, is what I remember you saying. Yeah, uh, that is. Lateralis is seventy eight minutes long. I could listen to lateral. There's there's a you know just something for how well an album structured how it can make time fly. Yeah, I listen to I listen to Audio Slave. And after the first 30 minutes, I'm like, oh, this is a banger of an album. And then the songs drop off and I start looking at my watch and I'm just like, mm, I'm going to change to something else. Lateralis, you put that on from the start. You, you're damn right I'm going to listen to the end if I can. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, I, I'm very much the same. It totally drops off. And, and to come back to, to Shadow on the Sun, like it is, I think it's probably the best song on the album. There's... I like. I'm in love with like a stone. I think I always will be. You've got songs like "Show Me How to Live" is an incredible song. Gasoline, I think, is like a diet. Show me how to live. Especially, I think that that's because of the music video. Because of the music video had a load of cars in it, and then you hear a song called "Gasoline." Yeah, that's maybe. A, it puts an image in my head every time of, of like, is this is this part two? If they maybe put gasoline after set it off and before shadow in the sun, maybe it wouldn't stand out as much as a bit of a of a. I'd put it at the end. I'd swap gasoline with bring them back alive, just so that there's some. Because I think gasoline's a great song. Yep. Down, just in the down, 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 down. Like get that, put that at the end, put a bit of life into the end of the album. I think that could have maybe improved things ever so slightly. There is, I mean, I think you've got songs like songs like Show Me How to Live, like Gasoline, like Set It Off, Exploder, Bring Them Back Alive. These are five songs that have great riffs, but they follow the same formula. It's big riff, verse, big riff chorus, verse, big riff outro. And yeah, that, clearly the, at the, those, the, the tail end of the, the writing sessions, they're the ones that they bashed out you know, three of in a day and then they spent a whole two days writing something like Show Me How to Live. Perhaps I could be wrong. So those songs have great riffs and great moments, but starts to get a bit formulaic yeah. for me, especially especially listening to this in preparation for here. I just thought, right, this this is cool, but give me another Shadow of the Sun. Yeah, where's where's that again? I want I want I want more of that. Yeah, or give me another getaway car because I think getaway car is a really great song. Mm-hmm. I I love it. I love the solo, the guitar solo on that is 
sublime. The moment it just all it's all build up. It's a really quiet, really mellow song, and it was the first. It, it was also the first audio slave song I ever heard under the the Civilian Project. So it always has this little special place in in my head, yeah. of of you know. But then that guitar solo, I used to want to mimic that tone on my guitar every day because it was just so crisp and, and it break it just cuts through the uh the the song to stand uh, right on top i love it fucking love it a friend of mine perfected the like a stone solo i've mentioned before uh dave brought him up because uh, he was like he and i listened to muse together for the first time so we sort of dicked around with with covers it's a very muse-esque musish uh solo like a stone actually yeah, very much so. And Dave got had it. He he perfected it on Digitech Whammy. I don't know if it was on a Digitech Whammy. I think it was. I think that's why he wanted the pedal in the first place. Yeah. But yeah, it was the the guy was virtually not perfect. He also did the same with um, the warmth. I had a cog. I had a cog AX one thousand five hundred, and I used to try my best, try my damnedest to replicate that Digitech Whammy sound, and I think memory serves mind the expression pedal would only go two octaves and i think to do tom rello stuff or would only go one octave and i think to do tom rello stuff you needed to go two there was some there was some reason i couldn't i couldn't nail it and i didn't like doing it and i and i did always want a digitech whammy but i never got one and it just ended up going by the wayside sadly well i just had to play the bass lines and they were relatively simple I do also remember having the warmth had a, a setting, like there was three settings on on it, and I had the warmth, stone to get like a stone, uh-huh. and bomb track. <laughs> all all great tones. But yeah, that sort of that sort of brings me up to my experience with audio slave. Generally positive listened have gone back to this album multiple times over the years you know just just to get a little bit of cochise a little bit of uh show me how to live etc you know these are good songs that i I like to revisit maybe i haven't done it in a while but it's an album that stuck with me why i dropped off so quickly like i say maybe the the sheen of rage against machine wore off well literally rage against machine came back you were talking about what was it you said that that, that Chris Cornell was a, a really good frontman, or no? What was it you said earlier about a frontman being really engaging? I mean, he was a fr- he was very much um, very intense. Uh, very, he had the live presence. You were you went to see Chris Cornell perform. He could have been backed by you know a band of fleas, and he would have had an absolute bomb, an amazing show. And the same goes for the the three guys. They could have anyone, maybe not anybody, but really they could perform without a vocalist and still rock it out. Whereas, and then you put them together, and it was just as lightning in a bottle. They were they were they blew it up. Um, so yeah. So like I mentioned, raising um, I saw Audio Slave two thousand five, Tina Park. You can see that performance on YouTube. It is rough. Cornell is not on form it's musically it seems okay but it seems a little subdued compared to 2008 when i saw rage against the machine 
at Tea in the Park. Now I'm talking full rage with Zach De La Rocha. That was a reunion tour of theirs. And comparing the two, I don't like to compare the two because to me they are two very separate bands and, and I don't want to... It's hard not to compare them when they're, it's the same same guitarist who is using the same equipment. He never changed up. He never swapped into anything to be more mellow. Or he, he kept his setup to make yeah. the, the music I, he loved. I don't want to short out Chris Grinnell and, and what he achieved and the musician that he was, but yeah, Audio Slave was a sort of midday main stage performance and I remember him, I know now obviously his troubles with alcohol, but I remember him walking out with a cafetiere. He had like coffee on stage and stuff and I remember thinking, that's a bit weird, I'm drunk as fuck. But obviously the man had issues with alcohol, so 100% fair enough. Fast forward to 2008, Zach De La Rocha, like, if if I was standing next to the US Embassy, I'd have lit it on fire. Because that's <laughs> what he told me to do. And I was about to do it. Like, he was so engaging, so, like, just had the crowd in the palm of his hands, compared to what was essentially a bit of a sleepy dad rock performance from Audio mm. Slave a few years later. Zach De La Rocha, I stands as one of the best performances I have ever seen next to Coldplay. Like I was just <laughs> out my goddamn mind on adrenaline and excitement watching Rage Against the Machine, and from those two performances, two completely different bands. Wow, that's interesting to hear that. I, I always would just assume that there would have been chalk and cheese, but I suppose, like you say. Zach De La Rocha, the type of lyrics that he's singing, very active lyrics. You know, they want yeah. you to take part and get involved. Whereas Chris Cornell's lyrics are a bit more, you know, you, I, I you know, there. I don't know what the word is for it, but you're not, you know, you're not singing "I Am the Highway" and thinking I'm going to become a road. You know, yeah, they're, they're far more personable. They're far more maybe even relatable you know a little bit more reflective a little bit more somber lyrics 100 percent. and then you get zach de la rocha that is like fuck you i won't do with you what you tell me and you're in a mosh pit and you don't know what's going on yeah so you know they are they are two very completely different bands but uh ultimately back to audio slave i enjoyed them i enjoyed this album i think it still stands today as a very good album although those Whatever that comment from Pitchforks was saying it's overproduced, I don't think that's a problem with this album at all. I think it was I think they're really weird comments to come out with, but hey, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Yeah, I think it's a, a, a good album. Uh it was one that I listened to a lot in my teens. It's one I have not regularly but irregularly gone back to. It's been interesting going back to it uh this last week, just having a sort of a rekindling of it. Am I going to listen to it tomorrow, even though we don't? I don't have to anymore? Probably not. I'll move on from it quite comfortably. Will I go back, like you say, listen to the hits, listen to Shadow of the Sun, Like a Stone, Show Me How to Live, Cachis and Getaway Car? Definitely. There will come a time those songs will come on, on my rotation, and I won't skip them. But will I go out, get out my way and listen to the album again? Unlikely. No, and I'm very much the same. Yeah, yeah, 100% same with you there. Will I listen to this album start to finish again? Yeah, not unless someone requests it, not unless we revisit this in a couple of years or whatever. But 
those those singles were were very enjoyable and and to this day still still stand as great songs. Totally. So uh, with with Audio Slave and what was your last week, Jimmy World? We've we've gone. I think we're going down a bit of a, a rabbit hole of the of the of the dad rock acceptable music. Yeah, we've definitely taken a turn from new metal that wasn't initially the direction I stuck with. Um, I think that's just a combination of our music taste together. Like, obviously, I didn't listen to Jimmy Eat World and, and, and uh, Audio Save at the same time. So it's it, it's funny that I find where we find ourselves in this in this place of quote dad rock or a little bit more radio friendly rock. So are you are you taking us down a similar path next week, or are we going are we going back to heavy? Are we going back to some fucking metal? Oh man, I'm tempted to go down fucking metal route. There's loads. Uh, the list just goes on. This one, though, I can't ignore it. And I think the fact that we've just spoke about sort of dipping my toes into that grunge pool a couple of times now, I think it's about time that I'm not going to do a grunge album, but I think okay. I need to recognise one that was really important for its time. And it. I think it's still, I hope it holds up uh, in 2021. I would like to do mm-hmm. a Foo Fighters album next. Ooh, the Kings of Dad Rock. The Kings of Dad Rock. But a good Foo Fighters album. I'm gonna I'm gonna I really wanna get this in. I wanna do the colour and the shape. Does that have Everlong on it? That has Everlong on it. That That's has My Hero on it. That's got Monkey Wrench on it. That's uh Hey Johnny Park. It's got all the good songs. This is taking us back, isn't it? Are we going back in time here? 90s yeah 97 so a little bit of a step back so i was gonna do i was gonna be totally shit and do super unknown that was in my head but i was like i am not familiar i'm I'm familiar with fair songs i do not know their no no i mean i was gonna do a chris cornell um, soundgarden album and there you go go. you you've justified why we're not gonna do a soundgarden album (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna do i i would like us to talk about color and the shape as i think there's a lot of interesting stuff that happened in the making of that album. Uh, again, it's a super group of sorts, and uh, I think that's got some got some kind of some good uh, talking points that we can cover over on that, um, and maybe has a lot of similarities to this that I may be able to bring through. Maybe they did it right. Maybe they did it better. Let's talk about it. All right, man. Cool. I'm I'm down for that. I have enjoyed Foo Fighters over the years. We even mentioned them. Last week with Jimmy Eat World, who did it first? The Palm Mute. Was it Jimmy Eat World or was it Foo Fighters? Definitely Foo Fighters. Definitely Foo Fighters. You'll yeah, find out why soon. I'll maybe do a little comparison there. So, after you, sir. Uh, are you going to take us home or have we got anything else to say about this one? I'm going to take us home. You take us home, Keith. Thanks for listening. This has been Alive or Just Blethering. Head over to our Instagram Facebook and Twitter at AOGB Podcast for all our latest updates. Next time on Alive or Just Blathering, Lav will be taking us through insert album The Colour and the Shape. Bye. Foo Fighters. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Good night. Good night.